0: And welcome to episode 9 of Musicians Weekend, the podcast in which we explore the weird and wonderful lives of those who keep classical music making alive. In this episode, we'll be chatting about recent events in our own lives and in the classical music world, as well as an interview with a special guest. We are three London based freelancers. I'm Olivia
1: and I play the harp. I'm Imogen and I play the trumpet.
2: And I'm Davina and I play the cello. As it's been summer we've all been away in various places so we've got plenty to catch up on. Imogen where have you been and what have you been up to lately?
1: Well I've had a nice summer so far. I've been away a little bit. I was in Wales for a few days on a little holiday but before I went away I was involved in the inaugural gala at Opera Holland Park of Swapra, which is a new initiative uh, standing for supporting women and parents in opera. And it was started by five inspiring women, all with links to the opera world, um, who are trying to overcome the obstacles of being parents and performers. Mm -hmm. So the initiative includes things like trying to encourage opera houses to have a creche during rehearsals for their kids to go to, and for the companies to send out family-friendly schedules much further Mm -hmm. in advance, so they can plan better their childcare, around their rehearsings. I mean, I think the thought of an opera gala might not always fill me with a lot of excitement because <laughs> I've always just imagined a very long night. Um, but the music choices here and the quality of the performance was just totally brilliant. There was lots of famous arias by you know, Mozart, we had Rossini and Puccini. but my favorite scenes that they did were actually ones from contemporary operas. So there's one scene from an opera called Silver Birch by Roxana Ponefnick which was commissioned by Garsington Opera as part of their kind of community project last year. And the scene in this one was a particularly compelling one about a mother and her son who's going off to war. And that involved... I can't even think how many people there were on stage. Maybe... 40 women or something, it was amazing Um, they had loads of people involved in that one it was just really beautiful music and my other favourite was the final scene from Little Women which has been adapted into an opera by Mark Adamo uh, about 20 years ago it's been a big hit in America since it was released but it's never actually been performed in the UK until this scene the other day, that's opera so hopefully that will change soon because it was an absolutely stunning piece of music and there was a really great quartet between the four sisters so I really enjoyed that and everyone from the singers instrumentalists, conductors, directors, the photographers, everyone gave their time for free for this gala um, to support Swapra's cause, which I thought just created a really nice atmosphere. It's a little bit like, it's like the Andelium festival that you guys have just been on. Sure. Where everyone, even though it should be this, this anyway, but everyone just feels a bit more like a level, level field and it just feels like everyone's really supporting together.
2: Was it all female as well? It was all female, all yeah. Female. Wow. Um, That's quite impressive.
1: And it was quite silly because we had these backstage toilets and um, there was just huge queues, as normal, for the women's ones. And then a couple <laughs> of us were like, hang on, there were literally no men in this yeah. place. So we were just like, we're <laughs> going to use the men's now. Um, so it was quite funny when you saw a man around, you're like, ooh, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, Minority. But it was really, it, it ran so smoothly. It was really a successful night. So I'm sure they're going to do it hopefully every year or something like that. Um, I also went to watch a prom last week. It was the Aurora Orchestra prom, one of the late ones at ten fifteen, and they played a program Shostakovich. They did his second piano concerto and also his ninth symphony, which they played from memory. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Uh, that's their thing. I mean, back in I think it's August twenty fourteen, they did their first proper proms performance, where they became the first professional orchestra in the modern era to perform a whole symphony from memory oh my god they did Mozart's symphony number no. 40
2: yeah
1: I don't know whether they have um like techniques that they teach people at the rehearsals I mean I guess when they come together as an orchestra they must already have all learned their parts yeah. so yeah. it must take months and just loads of listening I guess
2: listening preparation studying the score
3: yeah have you I guys s- had to do
2: that before Uh, Not in an official capacity as such, but I did perform from memory in an orchestra when I was doing a series of schools workshops, and it was the kind of thing where we did ten workshops in two days, so we became very, very familiar with the repertoire. One of the pieces we were doing was um, the overture to Marriage of Figaro, and we got to the tenth performance on the last day, and my desk partner and I, we decided let's see if we can do this off by half (laughs) (laughs) so we closed our music on the stand and then and then just played and by then we knew it so well we knew it was in d major we had lots of tonic lots of dominant and it went pretty well actually
1: it was quite liberating i think um, what's quite nice to see is there's so much eye contact between all the players Mm. and lots of smiles maybe because they're like remembering things that didn't go right in rehearsal or something, it looks like little little jokes. They just seem to really be much freer with their playing. I watched a very
2: small video about their rehearsals preparing for the Shostakovich 9 online and there was so much, as you say, so much more eye contact darting around, little giggles and stuff and people just really going for it, I think, because there's there aren't any physical barriers either, there's no stands or anything, so they're just so much more exposed totally
1: and i think it makes them more flexible as well so they can move around the st- they did a presentation before they perform the piece so they kind of all moved around the stage and they would kind of come forward in their groups and different sections and perform bits of the piece so that the audience could get to know kind of what it's about or things to listen out for so that was really a great thing as well kind of like a almost like a school's workshop but for <laughs> the audience of the proms to really learn about the music so it was, it was really exciting just something really different to what you normally see yeah uh, it's a really accessible way
2: for new listeners to get into the genre if they're sort of presented with something first because you never know that might have been the first prom that someone's ever been to, and then to see that they might feel more inclined to delve into Shostakovich's music.
0: Yeah, uh, memorising music is my biggest weakness, so I try and force myself to do some things from memory, like concerti, but um, yeah, the thought of Doing an orchestra performance from memory does kind of fill me with
1: fear. Do you like out of interest? Do you like sight reading? I love sight reading. Well, yes, like yeah. my dad. He's a musician, but not not a professional musician. But he has this theory that people who love sight reading and are really good at sight reading hate memorizing. And yeah. I can't quite work out what the, remember what the link is. That, but that,
0: that's always my big. It. That's my excuse. That's definitely my excuse. I always think. But if if you're good at one of those things, so I was always. I think my brain is more mathematical than oral, Mm -hmm. so I think I learn music from working out the Mm -hmm. like like a little puzzle, and I don't do it from listening back. And I've had so many people say to me, "How can you not memorize it having played it loads and loads and loads?" Yeah, I'm I'm just computing what I see on the page. Yeah. Which is, it's, it's bad, but that's just how my brain developed at such a young age. I think that's
2: how I've become more now, because I was, well, sight reading was my weakness when I was younger, and so I relied a lot on memory and oral to learn pieces, but now that my sight reading's become quite proficient, I do find it difficult to remember things that I've played just last week, you know, also if you're, if you're busy as well, then there's a lot of stuff to remember you're not going to remember
1: everything yeah i think i used to really enjoy the challenge of memorizing music and especially for competitions or performances at college i I used to really like doing things from memory sort of just for myself just to kind of perhaps i also quite liked the thought that if i couldn't see what was coming up next i didn't get worried about it you know (laughs) i could i just had to take it as it comes like you can't when you're playing from memory you can't really be thinking ahead too far because You need to be. Your mind needs to be on what you're playing right then and there. It forces you to be in the moment. Yeah, but it's also it? good yeah. for if something perhaps has gone wrong, then you can't dwell on it because you've got to think about what's coming up next because you can't just look on. You know, yeah. like we oh, talked about I before. About
0: I just I just dwell. if I make oh, a really. mistake and I'm playing from memory, I just think, oh my god, how could I've done that? And then yeah. I spend the rest of the performance. And thinking, that throws you. What yeah.
2: A I am. In auditions, I like to do my concertos by memory. Yeah. But that's because I I don't even practice it with the music on the stand anymore. So. I'd probably get thrown if I had the music on the stand. Because hmm. say if I did get lost and I made a mistake and I'd be searching for ages, whereabouts on the page am I? It'd throw me off even more.
0: <laughs> N- now if I want to memorise something, if I'm going back to a piece that I can play from memory, I have to force myself not to go to play on without having memorised the first four bars and the next four bars, something like that.
1: Because otherwise I would just cheat and play <laughs> it all from the music and won't get
0: anything <laughs> learnt.
1: Sometimes working backwards is a good method where you kind of do the last line, you kind of play that and then you just, yeah, keep adding on a line or, or a chunk or something and then it just means by the time you've got back to the top of the piece you've played it the whole thing actually already yes. loads of times. Yeah. Talking about fear, I read a really good book last week which was called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by American author Susan Jeffers and it's a book more kind of general about fears but I was interested to see how it could relate to the music profession especially following on from last episode's interview with Simone about performance anxiety the main message of the book is that fear comes from a distrust in our ability to handle whatever comes our way that's why we worry about things because we think we won't actually be able to handle something going wrong or not doing something right so basically if we can develop that trust what could we possibly have to fear that's what her point is so if you don't succeed you'll handle it if you do succeed you'll handle it whatever life throws at you you'll handle it so we just need to try and teach our brains and really believe it that whatever happens it will be fine and then the fear doesn't need to be there does that make sense sure yeah
2: i remember one thing my sister said to me was um prepare for the worst but hope for the best so keeping positive is quite, um, is quite useful because you have to remember that in the past you have been through lots of challenges and you have found your way out. And even if you're right down at the bottom, then at least the only way out is up.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, positive thinking is a massive theme in the book. She talks a lot about how the conscious mind has a lot of power over the subconscious mind. i was read you this bit. She says, sometimes I'd ask someone to come and stand at the front of my class. I would ask the volunteer to make a fist and extend either arm out to the side. I then tell them to resist with as much strength as they can as I stand facing them and attempt to push down their arm with my hand. Not once have I succeeded in pushing down their arm on my initial trial. I then ask them to put their arm down, close their eyes and repeat 10 times the negative statement I am weak and an unworthy person. I tell them to get into the feel of that statement, really to believe it. Then, when they've repeated that statement ten times, ask them to open their eyes, extend their arm again, and resist as hard as they can. Immediately, I can bring their arm down. There is no resistance. It's as though all the strength has left left them. I wish I could record the expression on my volunteers' faces when they find it impossible to to resist my pressure. A few have made me do it again, saying, I wasn't ready, I wasn't ready. Um, But lo and behold, the same thing happens again on the second try. The arm goes straight down without any resistance. I then ask the volunteer once again to close their eyes and repeat 10 times the positive statement. I am a strong and worthy person. I really tell them to believe it and to say it 10 times. And then I ask them to extend their arms and resist my pressure. To their amazement, I cannot budge their arm. In fact, it's even more steadfast than the first time I tried to push it down. I kind of thought when I read this, that its I'm sure there must be something we can link to music. And if you have like a scary entry or really difficult passage coming up, if you say to yourself, oh my gosh, this is really scary, I'm not sure I'm going to yeah. get it right, yeah, then it, you probably won't yeah, do you it. You'll screw it up. Yeah. So somehow you need to just be able to say to yourself, I am strong, I'm really good, I'm going to get this right, and I'm going to succeed. And it's probably likely, I think it's like, much yeah. more likely, isn't it, that you will. Yeah. because and if you're prepared, and if you've practised, then you can sort of allow your brain to send that message yeah it's a a trusting yourself and that the subconscious listens to the signals from the conscious mind and never questions it so it just believes whatever you are feeding yeah so whatever you are feeding your conscious mind that is what the subconscious will believe even if you don't believe it fully perhaps in that moment you need to kind of say it anyway because that's what it will believe so does that. Okay. Yeah. good sure, thought that was quite nice. Let's try it. We'll try it out yeah. and we'll report back. <laughs> Visualising something going perfectly. That just gives you really helps you to know what you're actually working towards. Positive thinking takes practice. She likens it to keeping your body in good shape, like with exercise. You can't just stop working out once you've reached your goal of a great body. Otherwise, you know, it will just start to undo itself. So she suggests an exercise programme for your mind, um, like you would for your body. So reading positive books, like this one, um, listening to positive TED Talks or podcasts, reading a positive quote every day, that's quite a nice one, mm-hmm. um, and finding positive people to be around, which in turn will draw more positive people towards you, which I think is very true. Yeah, there's something to be said about like good energy in the world, I think. Like, putting out into the world what you want to receive yeah definitely and at the end of the book um they kind of do a little summary about with some truths about fear and i just thought i would list those for you number one the fear will never go away as long as you continue to grow so you can kind of see fear as a positive thing if you don't take any risks anymore then you probably won't be scared of things anymore but it also means that you're not actually developing you're not actually yeah, growing sure. at all
0: obviously not pushing yourself outside your comfort zone or doing challenging things
1: Mm. Exactly. Things. So you might not be you've got no fear. fearful, but actually you're also not you're getting also any better. And you've
2: become complacent, perhaps. <laughs>
1: yeah. So fear is just kind of part of the package of developing. Number two, the only way to get rid of the fear of doing something is to go out and do it. So don't play the when-then game. So, you know, when this happens, then I'll get on with it. Um, you know, if you, if you just go ahead and do it, then more often than not, you will wonder why you did not. Do it sooner.
2: Yeah, that's happened to me before. I've finally gone around to sending a message to someone that I've thought was a bit scary and then afterwards when they reply, I
1: just yeah, think, like, What on earth was I scared Yeah, of? <laughs> what like what a waste of brain energy. Energy, and time. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it links to number three. Number three is the only way to feel better about yourself is to go out and do it. So each time you overcome a fear, each time you do something like that and you achieve something, a pattern of strength develops and you grow in self confidence. So kind of why wouldn't you go and Try and face your fears and, and do these things. It helps you so much. Number four, the final one is: not only are you afraid when facing the unknown, but so is everyone else. So you really need yeah. to remember that it's not just you. And anyone who succeeded in anything that they're doing in life um, has felt the fear and done it anyway. Mm. So you can do it too. I think it would be impossible to be completely fearless, right? Yeah, I think yeah. fear is. It, we talked about in the last episode that it gives you some adrenaline, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and motivation gives, and
2: if you didn't have that fear,
1: why would you go out and do anything at all?
2: Just knowing that you have faith to deal with whatever comes your way. Yeah. And, yeah, just remembering that.
1: So anyway, hopefully that's a nice little summary of what's in this book. I really recommend it, and we'll put a link to it um, with this episode. Enough from me. Davina. <laughs> On to Davina. What have you been up to this summer, Davina? Well, as I mentioned in the last
2: episode, I was doing a run of Madame Butterfly at Iford Manor out in Bradford-on-Avon, which I really enjoyed, but it made me so knackered as a result because it was really far away. Um, and that patch of work sadly coincided with the first week of the Indellian Festival, which we've mentioned several times in this podcast. But I went along anyway. I got to go for the second week, not as a player, but as a speaker spectator for once Mm. so I've been for the last four years um as a player playing in all the concerts but this is the first time I could really just go along and watch the concerts so some of the concerts I saw um there's a whole range of music at the Saint and festival there's a lot of chamber music one of the highlights was um Tchaikovsky piano trio which is just a really lush piano trio it's only two movements but it it's almost an hour long um, it just it, it creates a whole world I think and um, the second movement it's a theme in variations and the thing that really struck me was that no wonder Tchaikovsky is such a successful composer for ballet because he manages to portray so many different kind of characteristics in his music but they're all unmistakably Tchaikovsky. Um, I just realised I spoke about Tchaikovsky in the last episode as well. Oh yeah, the symphony is going <laughs> oh, on. Oh, your <laughs> My fave. There was a great performance of Marla Symphony number no. four, which I'd never heard live before. So I'd recommend people check that out. It you'll you'll know it's Mahler Four straight away because there are sleigh bells at the beginning. <laughs> 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 so sounds like Jingle bells. Um, I was really, really drawn into that. I'll send it to you for that question. Yes you are. Yeah. And the choir um, did a special late night concert of some Broadway chorus tunes. Which was, it was nice to see the choir do um, something a little bit different from what they normally do. There's a lot of um, oratorios, requiems and opera that we do in Delian. But this was the first time I'd see them do something fairly informal. So it was quite cool to see a bit of jazz hands and some choreography going on in the choir stalls. And the opera that they performed this year was Berlioz's Damnation of Faust. It's the first time I've been to an opera without certitles that wasn't in English. So it was all sung completely in French and I thought I wonder if I'm going to enjoy this because I don't really know the story. I know it's got something vaguely to do with making a pact with the devil. And I went in, uh, I had a synopsis with program notes in front of me and thank goodness for that because I was able to follow through the opera really well even though I didn't understand the language. And it was wonderful and immersive because I was sitting there in the audience and it's performed in a church and so the singers are kind of circling around the audience. So I found myself um, sitting there and then all of a sudden Faust's robes were draped over my knees as he walked past (laughs) me in the aisle. Um, And then at one point he was ripping up bits of paper and it was just flying all over the audience so it was it was just really cool to be in an immersive opera like that absolutely bizarre plot um, as operas usually are but I really really enjoyed it in terms of performance anxiety I haven't really had any in the last couple weeks because I've not been playing (laughs) but what I have been up to uh, now that I'm back in London I've been getting back into exercising so just looking after myself because after traveling um, a lot and being out of town, I find that often your well-being falls by the wayside. So I've been doing a bit of yoga, just to get my (laughs) flexibility, my alignment back. Um, And one of my favorite forms of exercising to do, and I'm wondering if anyone out there feels the same, is to go bouldering. And if you don't know what that is, that's indoor climbing without ropes. You just do short little routes. Um, It's all color-coded. holds that that outline the path that you need to take. But it's really, really wonderful exercise because it uses your whole body. As a result, I'm really, really sore today as I'm sitting here. (laughs) Um, But I think it's got some good parallels with performing as well because you have to plan your route from the bottom to the top. Let's say you're going to um, follow the blue holds all the way up to the top of the wall and you have to think, how am I going to get from here to there using only those grips and then there are some moves where you just have to tell yourself I'm gonna make it I'm gonna make it face the
0: fear exactly you gotta
2: face the fear (laughs) do it do it anyway because if you fail you know you're just gonna tumble down a couple meters onto the mattress but still that's not very pleasant for anybody so I really like that challenge of seeing a task that's in front of me and having to overcome overcome my fears and Sometimes I surprise myself, actually. I get to the top of a particular route and I think, how on earth did I get up here? And then the challenge is getting back down. But it's, it's a good mental challenge as well as a physical challenge. So I would recommend bouldering to anyone who's looking for a very exciting way to exercise.
1: How high do you go up?
2: Not that high, it would be maybe like three meters or so, three or four meters. So if you did fall, they, they tell you um, like how you should fall most effectively so you don't fall on your neck or anything just fall landing on your bum or something mm-hmm. so that you don't wow. break anything. I think some people get worried about fingers as musicians mm-hmm, going yeah. bouldering because they just think oh what if you break something but actually um I've got pretty good finger strength anyway I think from playing the cello it does actually <laughs> True. it does actually help and you do develop some pretty mean um, calluses on your hands <laughs> from from the grips.
1: I only have three strong fingers yeah. <laughs> You tell me what I, yes. I guess, guess your embouchure
2: is not going to help you
0: much from no, Yeah, <laughs> that's true <laughs> So
2: Olivia, what have you been up to?
0: But apart from playing at the amazing Cententennial Festival Yay. in Cornwall uh, I went to Glyndebourne Opera with Imogen a couple of weeks ago and saw their Peleus and Melisande by Debussy oh, I'd never seen that opera before um, its director was Stefan Herheim. And it was quite a strange production. Yes. Um, there were lots of lots of chat in the interval. For, I could overhear people saying, sorry, what's going on? Like, so it's, it was a little bit confusing. Some curious and kind of unnecessary things popped up, including uh, Jesus at the back of the stage mm. at one point with a goat around him. Yes. So um, I loved the music. I'd never seen it live. So that was um, brilliant. And Christina Gantz playing Melisande was amazing. Um, but the production was a little confusing. But I did hear that they he'd originally wanted to set it in space and they, they'd vetoed it. <laughs> <laughs> the next best thing. So the next best thing was the organ room at Glyndebourne and the, the show ended with um, people coming onto the stage as if they were Glyndebourne audience members, which left everyone sort of having a little um, titter at the end, which kind of, some people thought wrecked, uh, quite a quite magical
1: moment Yeah, I thought it was a shame after that, the, the music's so stunning, I thought yeah. I, was, I should have just left it with
3: that.
0: I'm seeing Vanessa again there uh, today, <laughs> well, Vanessa for the first time that's Samuel Barber's opera that's rarely performed so I'm looking forward to that and a bit of classical music news to share with you uh, the new artistic director at Glyndebourne has been announced as Stephen Langridge, currently the director at Gothenburg Opera, and he is starting there at Glyndebourne in 2019 in the spring mm. Thank you to a Musicians Weekend listener for sending in a photo and a question about the conductor Theodore Karensis um, he is the conductor who recently had a huge prom success um, conducting Beethoven's second and fifth symphonies um, saw glowing reviews on that on Twitter um, but he posed and the uh, times um, with uh, biceps bulging, recline, <laughs> reclining in a, in a wife beater vest. And um, the listener sent in a message saying, what do you think of, of this picture? And I, I've shown you girls yeah. the photo. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts on, on that. And if you had any thoughts in general about uh, sexualization um, in classical music.
2: Well, first of all, looking at the picture, I didn't necessarily know he was a conductor.
1: Not at all. So he's not even holding
2: a baton or anything, is he? Yeah, but he's just he's just leaning back and his arms are just on show and it's a bit like, that's a bit unusual. But yeah, for sure, I think definitely with female artists, there have been lots of um, provocatively dressed or, you know, undressed um, Wang, the Chinese uh, artists who, who are out there and... Um, you know, and hopefully it doesn't detract from their playing. But I think what would be really unfortunate is if everyone was expected to dress in that manner.
0: Well, I don't think they're—I don't, don't think they're really allowed to in our quite closed no. world. Because I think about people like Yuja Wang, who's an amazing pianist who wears um, mini skirts. And yeah, studios. very high slit
1: dresses when she
0: performs and things.
1: Yeah. but the quality of her music is yeah. really brilliant. Yeah, because
2: there are loads of people that will listen to her with their with their eyes closed.
1: I think the the picture of Theodore, where's he from? Greece. Uh, Greek Russian. Okay, it feels like because he's like flexing his muscles. Maybe it's a bit of a kind of flexing his power type thing as well. I don't know. And it, it just doesn't. I can't imagine what the female equivalent might be. Why? Well, because when women are put in, well, when yeah, women like, are he sexualized and powerful, pictures,
0: and I don't think and there's just oh look the equivalent is... would be. Revealing,
2: yeah, revealing. This is a pretty woman to look at. Never mind yeah. what she sounds like. It's quite a funny Instagram account called Cringy Classical Photos or something. I
0: think. Oh yeah, seen That's that. An uh, and it's
2: just got uh, like there's there's a hilarious picture of a, a woman dressed quite provocatively, wearing high heels, holding a cello on a treadmill, <laughs> and you just think there's so many things wrong with this. Like what on earth?
0: Talking about weirdiness your accounts. There's another one called. Piano and heels lover, and that one's a little bit spooky. I think they've made it private now, but it's <laughs> it's just an account of people wearing stilettos pushing
1: down piano pedals. Oh <laughs> gosh! Oh wow! So it's been made by someone who just I enjoys the those things, okay, yeah. Not the person thing. who yeah. actually does it.
0: I highly doubt we're ever going to get to a point where people, everyone's going to be doing it because yeah. people are still so critical and classical music is so kind of almost anti-image sometimes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the fact that,
2: you know, a lot of the concerts we do are still dressed in black, make sure that you've got your shoulders covered, no spaghetti straps, things like that, it's still very conservative mm. in that sense. So I, I don't think we're ever going to be doing an orchestra concert where we're playing in really, really yeah. skimpy dresses. Is that for the, I wouldn't do one, for Is sure. that for the
1: audience, to, for them to concentrate on the music more rather than who's playing it? What, how, how people are dressed? Yeah, yeah. So, if, if, so if there was a lot of flesh on show, perhaps, then mm. perhaps some so then, audience members might find it harder to concentrate on the actual music. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> but, it, sounds like yeah. it sounds like an outdated I suppose so, thing, but, but, but then that.
2: I guess a lot of concerts are in quite sacred places, like churches as well, and they kind mm-hmm. of have to respect...
0: But the but, the all black thing, it's a bit boring. It is a
2: bit boring.
0: The only good thing is that it completely takes away any thought. It feels like school uniform. They just pop your black outfit in your bag and you have to think about what you're going <laughs> to yeah. wear. And you can always yeah. do it only, with more black clothes
2: in your wardrobe.
0: That's the only good thing about it. But I remember when we were at Royal Academy of Music, Imogen. I think it changed one year, yeah. It changed from
1: having coloured dresses for the orchestral concerts to all black. But it changed because of a student vote. They put it to the students and the majority chose to not have colour dresses anymore Okay, I do find it quite difficult when you're in a group and they say oh black with a splash of colour
2: because a <laughs> splash of colour means something very different to a lot of people yeah. so you get some people who wear like a a purple ribbon in their hair and then some people go go like all out and basically just wear black shoes yeah, that, that's my
0: least favorite <laughs> <laughs> just goes yeah,
2: yeah i so. mean i'm happy with all black for now national colors and all that but um it <coughs> just <laughs> it takes away the um the excessive thought of what you're gonna have to wear really
0: yeah lastly i just really mm-hmm. wanted to mention this story that i only heard for the first time a couple of days ago Um, A friend who was the Student Union President at the Royal Academy of Music in 2009 told me about this very bizarre episode that happened while she was a student. And there was a flute student there at the Academy. One day it was announced in orchestra that he wasn't able to um, complete the project um, due to illness. And his girlfriend went to see my friend, the Student Union President, and... Um, asked if she could write character reference. Uh, It turned out the character reference was for the police because he'd been charged with breaking and entering and it transpired that um, this flautis was a champion fly tyre, so this is for fishing and he had in fact broken into a wing of the Natural History Museum in Tring and stolen a million dollars worth of rare bird skins. (laughs) Um, and he was then selling these feathers, making beautiful ties and selling them online for hundreds of dollars to fly fish, to fly to to the fly fishing community. Anyway, it's just such a bizarre story. And we were only laughing about it a couple of days ago. And then yesterday, um, there's this brilliant podcast series called by, um, this American life. Uh, they're the same people who produce the serial podcast They released an episode yesterday about the whole case. And I just couldn't resist telling you girls about it because I think you'll find it really, really interesting. Um, It's been kind of created by this man called Kirk Wallace Johnson who's investigated the whole story. has even written a book about it called The Feather Thief. Beauty, Obsession and the Natural History Heist of the Century. Anyway, I'd highly recommend the podcast because the whole story is frankly completely unbelievable and it was supposedly to buy a gold flute and my friend who was the SU president nicknamed him Papageno from Mozart's Magic Flute who is
2: <laughs> the Birdman in um the opera and his little theme is did Diddle" played on the
0: flute ah. and he's a he's a bird catcher Is obviously
2: got to be an easier way to fund your Lavish flute habits.
0: <laughs> but they said, they said on the podcast that was the the man who investigated the story actually met the flautist, who's still living in Europe, he's mm. an American um, uh, guy, but he the flautist said that seeing them there in the museum, because he went and did a recce and saw all the feathers and stuff before, he said like, the sensation you get from seeing something that has so much worth to you, like... Is indescribable. So I guess it's the same as maybe else a lot seeing some rare, meeting a rare harp and be like, oh my god, yeah, I can't get over it. No, no. The world's most
2: expensive teapot.
0: All the world's <laughs> most expensive <laughs> teapot, exactly.
2: But you didn't steal that. <laughs>
0: <episode> <laughs>
1: <one>. <laughs> now on to our interview. Our special guest this week is Norwegian trumpet soloist Tina Ting Helsit. I first met Tina two years ago on a summer course in Oslo and following that I actually went to live in Oslo for almost two months at the start of 2017 where I had more lessons with Tina and got to know her better. Back in June this year I went on yet another course in Norway, a brand new course for wind players created by Tina and this was the setting for our interview. I think the only thing that Tina mentions which I should explain is Tenting which is her all-female brass deck tet clever name there Um, and there are some great videos on youtube of them so i would check that out halfway through our interview we moved outside because there's quite a lot of background noise where we were but annoyingly and predictably there was even more outside so i apologize for any traffic noise or background talking or gusts of wind that you might hear but without further ado here's my chat with tina Tina, welcome to Musicians Weekend.
3: Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, well, thank you. I'm very, very honoured and happy, Imogen, that I get to be a guest on your podcast. (laughs) It's very exciting.
1: So I wanted to start by asking how your career unfolded and whether you can pinpoint any main moments that kind of catapulted you to success. Oh, wow.
3: Um, Well, if we start in the very beginning, I come from a musical family, but not classical. Family. Um, it was more pop, and I don't know, Chicago, Tower of Power, uh, <laughs> Madonna, and then some Mozart and Mahler, and so on. But it was it was very very varied in genres and everything. And uh, both my parents played in an amateur wind band, which is uh, we have this really really strong tradition in Norway. A lot of kids and grown-ups uh, do this as their hobby, which I guess is also why or not guess which is why we have a very high level on um, wind players in this country on a professional level so i started then to play the trumpet because that felt natural my mom played it very early on i kind of recognized i was good at it it was fun i mean when you manage something really quickly then it's fun uh, when you don't have to practice too much <laughs> so it is very strange i was naive in one sense, I guess, that um, I can never remember not thinking or wanting to do anything else than play the trumpet as my profession. I was very lucky that my first teacher never told me how good I was, which I'm very grateful to her, because I do think there are a lot of kids show a lot of talent that have people around them that really focuses on that a lot. And, uh, I think it can be dangerous in that way that the kid, when he or she gets older, the reason for doing this is more because of the people around you than like if you actually want to do this. Um, so I'm very grateful to her for letting me really figure it out for myself. I was lucky with then my second teacher. I've only had two teachers in my life. He was my first teacher's teacher. Hi. So she just kind of passed me on to her old professor. And then he, he was like my second dad, he took me under his wing and, uh, or he, he took me seriously from the very beginning. And then just one thing led to another, I started, I did some competitions, but mostly I just got to play with great ensembles and then professional orchestras from when I was 16. And then when I was 18, I did this uh, uh, competition in Norway, it's the same as the BBC Young Musician, but then the Norwegian version. Mm-hmm. And I won this and came to the European final and I got second prize there and then suddenly I was Big time. traveling the world. <laughs> I got management um, soon after that, well, and record label and yeah, it all kind of wow. went crazy.
1: I've gotten to know you over the last two years through various courses and lessons, and I was gonna say that you seem like such a grounded person, but actually you just are such a (laughs) down-to-earth, normal person, (laughs) which I hope people can really tell from this, because it's so true. And it's really not always the case with soloists of your caliber. So I was wondering, do you think it's people around you who've helped to keep your feet on the ground, or have you had any experiences that
3: have helped to remind you to stay so humble? Well, first, um, I'm glad that you see me that way. I am, um, I mean, at the end of the I'm just me. Um, I am a, um, a normal, whatever that is, person with uh, my, you know, ups and downs and my flaws and my qualities and, you know, all of these things. Um, in one way, my career just kind of happened. But then, on the other hand, I worked really hard for it. But I am, have definitely been, you know, lucky with the good people around me. Um, That has, I guess, just reminded me that they like me as me and they don't want me to become some kind of diva, (laughs) or I don't think I ever was actually turning into a diva. I hope. No, I don't think so. But um, I don't know if I have that in me. No outrageous requests. Uh, (laughs) No, not as far as I know. I don't know. Maybe the presenters will say something else, (laughs) but uh, an orchestras. No, but I I think at the end of the day, I'm just me. I don't see a reason for causing drama or pretending I'm something I'm not. It feels like that's really reflected in in your social media. It's just so real. And I think
1: photos of you falling asleep on a train or practicing in an airport toilet or (laughs) with (laughs) no makeup on, no filters, things like that. And it's just kind of, it's refreshing to see. But I guess, is it
3: refreshing to post photos like that? Well, it was kind of, I think in the beginning, I was a little bit, not afraid, but I, I thought about it. How much do I want to share of my personal life uh, or my private life, you know, what's the, the difference between personal and private. Um, that a lot of things are of course just mine, but at the same time, I don't know, I think as long as it's okay with the people around me, I will I will post photos with my friends or now with my husband or when we were somewhere. Uh, yeah, it's recently that he became my husband, so Yay. I love saying that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I like to think that people uh, appreciate seeing the kind of normal, crazy side of this, like that we actually I just live my life like this, and it's not very glamorous. Sometimes it is, but very rarely, to be honest. Um, it's I don't know. It's just to show the life that I have and how it is. I'm not doing my Instagram so that people will think I'm pretty or something. If I have someone on Instagram, I would much rather see their everyday life and how they look for real than some kind of bikini photo or something <laughs> where I just feel horrible watching it because I don't, <laughs> I don't look like that. So it's just... I don't know. I like seeing the real side of other people, also famous people.
1: In our podcast, we're aiming to be as open and honest as possible about the reality of life as a musician, discussing the huge number of great things about this life, but also some of the lesser-talked-about not-so-good things. Three years ago, you took some time off playing under doctor's orders. And would you tell us briefly about that time in your life and how you overcame it?
3: Yeah, I mean, this life is, um, is a crazy life. Not only for soloists like myself, but I mean for everyone. We all have our struggles, our ups and downs, our wonderful things and our not so wonderful things going on in our lives. And um, for me, I mean, as I told you earlier, uh, everything just went crazy when I was 18. <laughs> and I uh, just traveled to the world all the time. I was away three quarters of the year on the road. So home wasn't really home. I played over 120 concerts a year which if you count, that's very often (laughs) (laughs) and I always practiced every day if I wasn't sick and even then I might have tried to practice if I could (laughs) so of course, that is a recipe for disaster at some point so for several years actually, before I got um, really ill and had to take time off I was just so tired the whole time you know, just like crying very easily being very like, even though I tried to relax, I was still tired. So I kind of woke up every morning feeling tired instead of actually, you know, feeling better after I relaxed. Uh, so and then people around me, my friends, my family, uh, my therapist, everyone was like, actually now it's getting you. You kind of have to start thinking about this, and you have to take time off. But of course, when when you're in my position. Uh, First of all, the career was my life. Playing was my life. And also my calendar was full for the next one and a half year. So if I said I want to take time off, then that would be in one and a half year. I mean, to put it on you know, like this, otherwise I would have to cancel. I did cancel some things before to see if that helped, but it didn't. Um, And then, in the very very beginning of January 2015, I was in a rehearsal with my group Tenting. I'm really happy it was with tenting and I just the whole day during the first part of the rehearsal I was just like we were going on tour this is never going to work I'm just so I feel like I have to cry all the time and then suddenly I cried I was laying on the floor crying So then of course they were like You are going to the doctor now No, but we have this tour. I can't Uh, Yes, you can so I went to the doctor and um, He said at least a month, and then the next couple of days he said two months. Um, And then we ended up with four months all off. um, And a little bit more, and then very, very slowly starting again. So I had three months where I didn't touch my instrument. It had nothing to do with playing. It was everything around the playing that made me tired. Which I'm very happy about, because I've heard other cases where it's like they feel sick just seeing their instrument so just the why I didn't practice was just because I couldn't I was just so exhausted it was it was not a thing that was even yeah it just didn't work that well Um, yeah and then now of course I've been back for a while now it's three years ago but I still it helped me just really realize that uh, first of all there's so much more to life (laughs) than playing the trumpet (laughs) <laughs> and it's very 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 important to cherish that and the people around you. Yeah, It just made me really realize that um, I love my profession but at the same time it's not everything it's my work, it's my job. I just think it's really important to not work too much and then listen to the signals before it's too late. Since you've
1: come back to playing it seems like there's been a lot of changes in you as a performer Obviously, you're much more in charge of what you do and what you take on, mm-hmm. and how you do it. And even things like, you started performing in bare feet. Yes. But can you explain why you chose to do that?
3: Yeah, well, actually the bare feet, I had started with a little bit before uh-huh. uh, it all happened. A little bit, but not, not all the time. Now I do it all the time. Um, I mean, it's the easiest thing, I don't know if you're allowed to even say that word on this podcast, but <laughs> I just don't give a fuck, you know, that stuff, in one sense. No one dies if I play a wrong note. Um, there's, I think when you, you know, see in the dark places, life is, well, again, so much more, but there are really more important things um, than playing. So yeah, I don't give a damn. And at the same time, it's so important to me what I do. Playing bare feet is very, how to say, it's very liberating because I'm so grounded. I feel very free and like, moving around on stage. I mean, I don't have a problem with the high heels, it's just that it is a very different feeling, especially if you're maybe a little bit nervous or something like that. It's easier to not breathe as freely as you would like to. Mm, yeah, it just feels really
1: nice. Has there ever been any health and safety gone mad where they say, you cannot wear no shoes?
3: <gasps> Actually, no, just, I was in Korea a couple of months ago. And uh, it was okay on stage I was, you know, allowed, but then suddenly for one concert it was like backstage. (laughs) Like just from the dressing room, getting onto the stage, you actually have to wear shoes because they're afraid of, I don't know, whatever is on the stage floor behind the actual where you are on stage. I mean, (laughs) the second time I went on, I went barefoot all the way. I didn't really see any dangerous about it, but uh, (laughs) I guess they're just being cautious. Last year you also ventured into the pop music
1: world with your album Never Going Back. From the title I guess it's clear it's about that darker period in your life and how you came through it. So did writing that album work like a kind
3: of therapy? A little bit I guess. I mean I turned 30 last year. Uh, you were there at my birthday and concert at <laughs> <laughs> the Opera House in Oslo. So it was a, a quite a big celebration. I was very lucky that uh I don't know, it was because of my role or my position um, in the music world that I got to have a birthday concert at the Opera House in Oslo with uh, musical guests that I had uh, invited uh, and also at that occasion I was releasing an album so it was this Norwegian label that recorded my two first albums before I signed with EMI on Warner Now, Warner Classic um, and they just, uh, this Norwegian label they just you know we're going to release this album and do whatever you want, which like never happens. So then I was like, okay, then I'll do a very different album. Um, I had some songs that I've written together with my very good friend, husband of my best friend, Yarla Storlöcken, a guitarist, arranger, He just all the arrangers pretending, all of my arrangements almost. Um, yeah, he's like my musical best mate, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> that I work with a lot. Uh, we had written two songs, or he had helped me get my songs to, to life. So we knew that uh, those two songs were going to be on the album. But then when we went into studio we thought maybe I would do some cover songs, I would play, I would sing, I would do like different types of things. Uh, but then when we went into studio it was the great Norwegian jazz trumpeter um, and just musical genius, Matthias Eich. he was the producer. And after the first day of recording, then it was like, I know you're talking about cover songs, but I really I, I love those songs and the music you've written, so I really think the whole album should be your music. Then, of course, I didn't have any songs, Uh, so I had to write a song every evening. (laughs) And we recorded it the next day. Uh, But then all the text and everything is about that time from 2015. It's from different angles of that. Uh, and it ends really well. So one one of the songs is also about Sebastian and um, how he suddenly then came into my life and then everything was you know perfect, fell into place. Yeah. So it's a very personal album, very different experience than recording uh, my you know my classical albums.
1: Since our last question, we've moved outside. <laughs> we have. Um, so it's nice and sunny, but it's also a bit noisy, so sorry if the quality is a bit different. Yeah,
3: um, well, but it's very nice outside. i yeah, enjoying sunny. the Norwegian sunshine. Yeah. Exactly.
1: As a soloist in demand all over the world, you must do a fair bit of traveling. But what has been the coolest place you've traveled to? And what's been the most interesting place? Not necessarily good
3: interesting, but bad interesting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it is very hard to um, say something very specific because there has been so many places that I would never in a million years visit, you know, as a tourist it's hard to remember them all like like that, but I guess most recently some great countries like Korea but then also a lot of places in Asia like Hong Kong and Japan would maybe be um, somewhere that people would go but still not the small towns, you know, then you would go to the to Tokyo or something like that Um, and then also small places around in Europe festivals summer festivals often in the strangest places I guess one of the most I've played a a couple of times I've played on top of like small mountains (laughs) I guess that can qualify as interesting so one place in Norway that's a but that was one of the really small mountains we have but then also last summer I think it was last summer, yeah, last summer uh, with Tenting we were on tour and then our last concert on that summer tour was in Italy, uh, in the Dolomites Mm -hmm. and we actually played a concert almost 3000 meters above sea level I don't know how you say that in English Yeah, yeah. and it was terrifying on the way up there when they asked me for this concert I hadn't really understood what it was I knew it was a festival and it was called something with a Il blah blah bla Dolomiti, something. So I did understand it has something to do with those mountains, but I didn't know it was like in them, so high <laughs> on, them. <laughs> <laughs> on them. So basically, like when we were going to the venue, first of all, they were like, You don't need to wear concert dresses, you need to wear jackets and wind, Walking you know, boots. yeah, stuff like that. We're like, Okay. And then we came to this, uh, oh, what is that called? Uh, Gundul, you know, like when they sit in the. A cable car. Oh, yeah. Yes. Which is, I'm terrified of heights and stuff like that. I hate cable cars. And I'm talking, you know, we had, there was two different ones and the last one was like the mother of all cable cars. It was like, you just saw some mountain tops. You saw that it was hanging from one to the other. I was like, what the? I'm not going up there. Sebastian was with us. He had to like hold, you know, around me. I was terrified. <laughs> but then when we finally got up there, of course it was this achievement that I felt. Uh, (laughs) Facing my fears (laughs) and then we played up there, which was an amazing experience because the audience also, you know, did that trip. So interesting in a good way. Is
1: there anywhere that you'd still love to go to,
3: to play? Uh, Oh yes, of course. Uh, I've never been to Africa, which I would love to. South Africa or something, um, probably the most, um, like the place that is most likely to go there. I would love to go, I've been there once, Hawaii. When I was young, Hawaii. I went to Hawaii, but never not the place. So I would love to go there to perform. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Then we can have holiday as well. <laughs> um, I was supposed to go to New Zealand when I was I had to take time off when I was ill. So I would love to go there, and I guess a lot of a little bit more like places far away from Norway, Oslo, home. <laughs> yeah. I've spent the week receiving
1: brilliant masterclasses from you and saxophonist Amy Dixon. You also teach at the Norwegian Academy of Music in Oslo and you give masterclasses around the world. Is there one main piece of advice that you find yourself giving to students, sort of wherever you
3: are in the world? Yes, it is actually and I've I've noticed it recently. Uh, Of course there are several things and I feel like I have some of course genius. Uh, Tips and advice (laughs) about (laughs) trumpet playing (laughs) when it's trumpet players But then the the one thing that I say to all students no matter the instrument is about phrasing And that is that you just have to do so much more than you think because it's it's so much going on inside our head But no one hears that so we have to really exaggerate Yeah
1: When you were studying you had lessons from violin teachers, singing teachers, piano accompanists and trumpet teachers. So,
3: are there pearls of wisdom from your teachers that you tried to pass on, things that you found most helpful? Well, there's a lot of things from my trumpet professor. Like, I'm not a big fan of talking really technically. I'm sure maybe you have noticed. <laughs> I like to think more um, like the whole experience of it, more than just you need to have your tongue there. So that mindset, I think I have a lot from him. And then also, of course, playing with so many other great musicians and playing for, so they've told me what they think about me and trumpet playing. That's what I love, playing for people that have no idea how our instrument works. I want to ask you two more questions. The first
1: one is, if you weren't a musician, what do you think you would have done instead?
3: Oh Well, I think my teachers at school would probably say that I should be like a lawyer or a doctor or something. Because they thought I was smart I don't know. Uh good grades. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I no no, I'm terrified of blood and I would be horrible <laughs> in a courtroom. So no. I don't know. Earlier I would probably say like there is nothing. I've never thought of it. But I don't know. I think I would still do something related to art somehow. But that's that's actually the only thing I can think of. It has to be something not like an office job. I would be horrible at that, I would need some kind of uh, freedom. And secondly, we'd like to know
1: what has been your weirdest ever gig, so your most bizarre performance experience, perhaps it was the mountain top gig.
3: I mean that was weird, but that was weird in also a good way. Uh, Most of my weird things has turned out to be a great experience. So again, maybe the mountain thing is, is, or the mountains that I've played. Yeah. is maybe uh, qualifies as very weird yeah well thank you so
1: much tina it's been an absolute joy to talk to you you're well, likewise
3: best. thank, thank you. you thank you for having me and and do continue with this podcast thanks so much to tina for that
2: wonderful chat i really hope that you get to go to new zealand sometime and if you do give me a call and i'll give you some tips so now it's on to our weird gig for this episode. We're being sent a weird scenario from cellist Samara, and she writes, my pianist and I were doing a recital tour in Spain and an arts counsellor we hadn't met yet invited us around to his house for dinner. He didn't mention that he lived in a nudist colony.
1: Oh my gosh,
2: <laughs> what? <laughs> in a nod to the sensibilities of his guests, he was wearing a loincloth and his wife was wearing a tiny nightdress, and they both spent the whole of dinner pulling at their clothes, <laughs> clearly very uncomfortable, <laughs> pulling things up and aside to air various parts of their anatomies. Also, dinner <laughs> itself consisted of stewed pigs' trotters, and to oh. this day, <laughs> it's the most revolting thing that's ever been on my plate. The smell alone made me wretch. So I've got this oh, thing on my plate that literally smells like the floor of an abattoir, <laughs> whilst the guy who booked us for the recital leans back in his chair and pulls his loincloth aside to air his testicles.
1: Oh, I've wow. never been back. Surely they could have gone out for dinner somewhere else. Oh my gosh. That's like classic. Like so often you have like a pre or post concert dinner though. At least they hadn't got to play after that or something. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, true. Thank
0: God it was post concert.
1: Yeah. That, that would horrible. that
0: would
2: throw you off. It? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but then wow. there's very much that thing must make eye contact. Don't look down. Don't yeah. look down. <laughs> that
1: is a good one. Thanks,
2: Samara. Yeah. Thanks, Samara, very much for that weird gig.
0: Now for some upcoming concerts. One production that looks particularly interesting is at Grindborne Opera, the Alternative Opera Festival hosted by the Arcola Theatre. Um, The production that I really want to go and see is Greek by Mark Anthony Turnage and there are two more dates left on the 17th and 18th of August. I found out about this production thanks to the repetitor on the show, David Todd, who has been listening to our podcast and sent us a tweet. So thanks so much, David. Hope it's been going really well. The prom that I'd most like to see Unfortunately clashes with one of the Greek (laughs) Nights But you've got options You can go see Greek on the Saturday And go and see Philip Venable's Violin concerto being premiered At the BBC proms on Friday The 17th of August And the violinist is Finnish Pekka Kusisto Oh cool So yeah That'll be a great one So um, go, go watch
1: lots of concerts Everyone Thank you to Chris Rowe, who composed our brilliant jingle, and to our special guest, Tina Ting-Helseth. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app. And if you enjoyed this episode, send it to a couple of friends and leave us a glowing review on iTunes. See you next time. Bye. Bye!